I hope you're all having a great day. Thank you for making fellowship today amongst each other a priority. It's nice to come together at least once a week. For many of us, two times a week. For some of us, three times a week. Let me tell you, I met a guy the other day. He visited Beth Sar Shalom, which is our Saturday congregation. And I shook his hand, and somebody told me, oh, he knows so-and-so whom you also know, because he also goes to their church. Hey, great, so, say hi to so-and-so. Um, did you know his brother was going to Egypt? No, I didn't know. Well, that's not the only church I go to. I go to lots of churches. I was like, why? And his response was, because I'm either sleeping or working or at church. He spends every waking moment at church. And though I love the idea and think it's good and right to be anchored into one body and serve to your greatest capacity, I couldn't criticize that spirit. The guy wants to be with God and God's people every waking moment. I just wanted to touch him again, because that's a true holy man of God, you know what I mean? It was pretty impressive. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. This morning's message, it's a little, I don't know, a little heavy. It's not my intention to send you any of you home in distress, but hopefully to send you home with some information that can help you minister to other people. So maybe this will be for you too, but my intent is I'm giving you this to you so you can give it to other people. There's been a lot of talk, as there always is, after what happened in Aurora. And um, I decided to address one of the topics that's always raised when something like that happens. Where was God? Why does God let those things happen? People ask it. Believers ask it. Unbelievers have, ask it. So I wanted to do some research. And I found that since 1982, there have been no less than 56 mass murders in the United States. Wow. They seem to be growing by leaps and bounds. You hardly ever heard of these things back in the day. Now it's every few weeks, it seems like, we're hearing about something. And so I got a list of some of the most well-known of late to remind you. And for some of you who are a bit younger, maybe you don't even know, like, biggest, most modern one that has most of our attention was Timothy McVeigh. If you remember, he blew up the Murrah Federal Building, filled a truck full of explosives, parked it in front of the building, and blew the whole thing up. Killed uh, 168 people, injured 800 other people. American man, American terrorist, just wanted to kill as many people as he could. And then, of course, September 11th, you know, those evil people flew their airplanes into our buildings and some of our heroes crashed the others so they couldn't do more. 2,752 people were murdered on September 11, 2001. Just a few years ago, in 2007, the Virginia Tech massacre, where a gunman just went all berserk on a college campus and started shooting as many people as he could, he killed 32 people. And then in 2009, Fort Hood, 13 soldiers were killed and, uh, well, soldiers and civilians. Now, this one wasn't American, but it stunned us just as much as if it was in America when that guy in Norway attacked a youth camp and the city center, murdered 77 people. This is just, you know, last year, 2011. And then that brings us up to Aurora, Colorado. You know, and Aurora had uh, 12 people killed in the theater. And then just a few years ago, before that, it was Columbine. 
and then it was the old age home in Colorado, and then it was um, the church in Colorado. Uh, you guys remember that one? But somebody in the church actually had a gun and stopped the bad guy. It's, it's almost scary to go outside anymore. And people ask, if God is there, and if God really cares, like you Christians say he does, God loves everybody, God is nice, then why does he allow this to happen? Be honest with me. How many of you have wondered that or had somebody tell you they wonder that? Let me see your hands. Yeah, almost everybody. It's an honest question. It doesn't mean you're faithless. It means you're curious. Because it doesn't seem to go together. If God is good and God is loving and all-powerful, he's got the ability to stop these things. So why doesn't he? We're not alone in asking that question. There's at least three prophets in the Bible who asked it. And one of them is the prophet we happen to be at today. His name is Habakkuk. Chances are you don't even know where that is in the Bible. Maybe you didn't even know it was in the Bible. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to find it. Pull out your Bible. If you didn't bring one, there's one in the pew in front of you. I would recommend starting at the table of contents. Otherwise, you're going to be thumbing for a while looking for this little bitty book. It's only a couple, three pages. Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk was uh, you know, contemporary with Jeremiah the prophet, right in the days of the waning of Judah's empire when it was ready to be destroyed, and things were not good. This is what he said. This is how the book starts out. The burden which the prophet, Habak prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you don't deliver. Why do you show me lawlessness and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. Now I'm going to jump up to verse 13. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why then do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why don't you do something? You keep quiet in heaven. You just let it go on. Why? This is a prophet of God who doesn't know the answer either. So you're in good company. The very first two words in the English, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Now maybe your translation uses a different word there. Maybe it says the vision. Because it's trying to, we don't use the word burden today, and it wants to give you a clarity of thought. But in some instances, I don't think that using a simpler word gives clarity of thought. This is one of those cases. Because the word isn't vision. The word is burden. This is heavy to him. Whatever he's experiencing in his conversation with God, it's burdensome. It weighs him down. We can understand when we hear about these things, especially for those who are involved in them, like what happened in Tucson. It's a burden. It weighs us down. And we cry out, God, why? And then he doesn't answer. Habakkuk did the exact same thing. You're going to find, though, by the time we're done, his attitude changes. And he's not the only one in the Bible who cries out to God and says, why? Why do the good people suffer? Job suffered 
tremendously, and he kept asking God, why? But by the time the book is done, his attitude changes. And there's another guy, his name is Asaph. He starts out even harsher than Habakkuk. Asaph starts off saying, I almost lost my faith because of this. Let me read it to you. I'm in Psalm 73. I'm skipping around, so don't turn there. I've got it on the screen for you. Go ahead and pull it up. Here's what this prophet says. I had nearly lost confidence. My faith was almost gone. I had almost lost my faith when I saw that things go well for the wicked. They don't suffer as other people do. They don't have the troubles other people have. Their hearts pour out evil. Their minds are busy with wicked schemes. They laugh at other people and speak of evil things. They're proud and make plans to oppress other people. They speak evil of God. They speak evil of God in heaven, and they give arrogant orders to everyone on earth. And then listen to what Asaph says. It's for nothing then that I've kept myself pure and have not committed sin. I've committed myself to God, I've avoided sin, and it's been a waste of my time. Why should I have done that? Why should I live a pure, good life when the wicked get prosperous and we righteous suffer? Thinking, wow, Asaph, know how you feel. Can you help? Verse 16. I tried to think this problem through, but it was too difficult for me. Okay, how many of you can relate to the prophet? There's a lot of things in life that are too difficult for us. What would happen if in order to follow through with trust, we had to understand everything that was communicated from above? And I don't mean just from God. Does it mean you have to understand the chief rocket scientist at Raytheon to be the janitor? Or to work under him on the team? When he says, no, I want this wire over here and I don't want to use that kind of circuit anymore. Why? Never mind why, I just, I know my job. That's why I have the job, just do what I say. We don't always get to understand. We're not even capable of understanding so many things. I got this cool phone. Do not know how it works. I mean, I know how to work it. I can call somebody. But how does touching a piece of glass communicate to somebody in Israel? How does it do that? That is so cool. Now, sometimes I don't have a good enough signal to even make a phone call, but I can send a text. Now, why can I send a text but not make a phone call? And sometimes I will touch the screen and it freezes and I have to pull out the battery. Why? I've touched the screen a million times. It didn't freeze. I don't have to know the answer to any of those questions to use my phone. I still use it. And when a three-year-old asks you a question, they don't have to know the answer. You just tell them to do it. I'm mom, I'm dad, trust me, I know it's good for you. Oh, yeah, you can do what the modern parents are doing, and I recommend you don't. Try to explain everything to your two-year-old. Yeah, that's going to be an exercise of futility. I said, don't touch it! Why? Because 120 volts passing through your young, immature body is more than likely or not to fry your brain. <laughs> you can say that if you want. Me, I'm just going to smack his hand and say, no, don't touch! I tried to think this problem through, but it was too difficult for me. 
if the psalm ended there, it would remind me of the book of Job. Because in the book of Job, Job cries out to God and says, I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I getting punished like this? I didn't do anything. I'm a good guy. And at the end of the book, God finally decides to talk to Job. And he doesn't even answer his question. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I spread out the heavens and the stars? And when I did this and I did that, and he, he mentions all these amazing things about God's creation. Can you answer any of those questions, Job? And Job was like, no. Then Job says, I'm sorry, I was an idiot. I shouldn't have complained. What transitioned in his heart between God challenging Job and Job finally realizing he was an idiot for opening his mouth? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. People guess. I can tell you this, though. Job went from thinking God was unfair and unjust to thinking himself an idiot in the span of 40 chapters. Why? Don't know. If having to live what Job lived to find the answer to that question, I'd rather be ignorant of the answer. But I can tell you this. God said, there's a lot about me you don't know, Job. You're not even capable of knowing. Maybe the answer to that question was one such thing that, you know, <laughs> my daughter Michaela is in a physics class. Like, what's that? Well, it's math. Okay, guess you're going to have to find a tutor because I can't help you. <laughs> you're on your own, kid. I don't speak that language. You know, I can help you write a paper. I'm real good at that. Need some help with public speaking? Right up my alley. It'll help about sociology? I'm there. History? Right up my alley. Math? I don't understand math. It's like speaking in Chinese to me. You know, a lot of languages I can listen to, and I can actually hear words, but in Chinese, I can't even pick out a word. It just, it's a bunch of sound to me. And that's how math is to me. Oh, sure, you've got to take this and divide it by that. Then why are there letters in there? <laughs> how does A plus B equals 2 million squared? And I don't know what squared means anyhow. And that's the simple stuff. And I, I don't understand it at all. And that's the simple stuff. So Job's asking the king of the universe the hardest question. And I'm sure God could have answered him if Job had the intelligence to listen to the answer. But it'd be like me asking a, you know, a PhD in math to show me an equation. He could show me all day long and prove to me that two plus two really is four and a half. And I'd just be, uh, okay. Yeah, if you say so. I think sometimes we ask God for answers, but we couldn't understand them if he gave them to us. And even more importantly, when people are suffering and miserable, they're asking for answers, but they don't want it. That's going to make them feel better? It's not. We ask for an answer, but it's not an answer we want or need. It's kind of like my car broke down. Could I have a gallon of Gatorade to make it go again? Well, why won't you give me a gallon of Gatorade? Because it ain't going to help your car go. Give me some Gatorade! No, you need gas. I don't need gas. I need Gatorade. 
we're asking for things that aren't going to help us anyway. Okay, well, let me tell you why the wicked suffer. I mean, the righteous suffer. Bah, 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 bah. You feel better now? No. They're still dead. And more are going to die tomorrow. We don't even know what to ask for. But I love Asaph because he just laid it right out there. And he didn't leave us hanging. Asaph had a change of heart right in the middle of the psalm. He tells us about his life's journey. He said, I tried to think this problem through, but it was too difficult for me until I went into the temple of God. I tried to think this through. It was too hard for me until I went to church. Now, the temple isn't church, and I know that, but the concept is the same. While he was at home, working on his own, none of this made sense to him. He could not deal with it. But then he went to church, and he connected with God, and then things started to change for him. The leadership of Book of Life and Bethsar Shalom spent Thursday and Friday at a leadership summit with a whole bunch of other leaders. In fact, it was a simulcast with over 100,000 leaders all over the world. It was cool. We were singing songs of praise to God in one sanctuary, but we knew that there were tens of thousands singing the exact same song all over the world to God. It was the coolest thing. It was one of the highlights of the, of the thing for me. And honestly, I'm not a big worship guy. Usually it's not the worship that speaks to me, it's the message. I'm a message guy. But that was a moment. Anyway, one of the... Um, Lead pastors, this is a pa one of the most influential pastors in the world. And he shared one of his stories. He said, when I was young, I felt hopeless at church. I didn't think church had, in fact, I wouldn't invite people to church because I didn't want them to come to my church. I was embarrassed for my church, and I figured if they came to my church, it'd turn them off from God, so I didn't even invite them. I thought church was hopeless. And then he went on and told the story of how he got plugged into another church, and he led a ministry, and he started seeing people get saved, and he went from, wow, there really is hope at church, to the place where he is now, where he believes that the church is the only hope for humanity, period. And he told the story of what transitioned him to that, about how he saw one little kid, maybe 10 years old, beating maybe a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid, bloody, just beating on him in some foreign country, country doesn't matter, and he got off his plane or whatever to stop it and almost missed his flight. And he said, the pe people from the plane said, hey, the, the flight's waiting just on you. But he didn't want to, he said, who's going to take care of this situation if I'm not here? And the, the, the um, airline people said, we'll make sure it's all taken care of. You can get on your plane. And on the plane, he was thinking, yeah, but what's going to happen to those boys? Is there a government program that's going to help them? Is that little kid who was so evil that he's beating to death another kid just going to transition and become a good person tomorrow? Is he going to go out and get an education and a fine job and become an upstanding citizen? More than likely, he's going to go from mini-gangster to major-gangster, from hurting a little kid to killing people. But then he knows of churches, church after church after church, who invest their lives and helping people get out of the gutter, who transform people, who go from situations like that from super sinner to super saint because they invest their time in the children in the name of Jesus. He said the only hope for those kids is the church. 
There's no government program. There's no pill they can take. There's no book they can read. There's only God's people. Only hope they have. I tried to think this problem through, but it was too difficult for me until I went into your temple. Then I understood. Then I understood what will happen to the wicked. You will put them in slippery places and make them fall to destruction. They're just like a dream that goes away in the morning. When you rouse yourself, O Lord, they disappear. Why did he go from thinking they had it all good to not so good? What, what changed? No facts on the ground changed. His attitude is what changed. I was talking to somebody the other day, just yesterday, having difficulty in their marriage. And the solution was actually pretty straight up, pretty easy, which is if you talk to counselors and pastors, that's often the case. Your life is in chaos and shambles, but the answer is pretty easy. Stop doing what you're doing. Start following God. Do what God says instead of what you've been doing, because what you've been doing isn't what God says. Tie it into the church. Read the Bible. Pray to God and do what it says. I don't want to tell you any of the specifics because I don't want them to hear this message and, you know, get embarrassed or anything. But it was pretty straight up. It was easy to fix. But one of the people in the relationship didn't want to do those things. So it's kind of like the Gatorade situation. Hating the circumstances, wanting a solution, but rejecting every good solution that was offered. It's a matter of perspective. Asaph wasn't tied to God, his brain went nuts, and he got mad at God. But when he tied up to God again, got back into the temple, his attitude changed. I know this isn't quite half, but for the illustration, we're going to say it is. Half empty or half full? And this is always the attitude thing, you know? If you're a half full kind of people, we want you. That's an optimist. If you're a half empty person, we'll miss you. Well, I saw this on Facebook. It was a glass with water halfway. And on the bottom, it had a little bracket. It said, half full of water. And then above that, it said, half full of air. The glass is always full. <laughs> now, that's the person I like right there. It's just perspective. And when we distance ourselves from God, our perspective goes dark and dim and leads to despair and hopelessness. And when we connect to God and his people, our perspective changes. The facts on the ground may not change, but our perspective does, and it makes all the difference in the world. Something else about Asaph. He realized that he was not thinking with his head. He was thinking with his heart. He realized he was emotional. He was mad at God because of his emotions, not because of his intellect. Again, be honest with me. How many of you have said or done something stupid because you were emotionally invested and not intellectually invested at that moment? Okay, so you all know exactly what I'm talking about. Listen, when something bad happens and we get mad at God, that's our emotions thinking, not our head thinking. God did not do it. Why are we mad at God? 
That would be like getting mad at me for what happened in Norway. Well, Steve, you could have stopped it. Well, yeah, I guess I could have. I could have flown to Norway last year and confiscated everybody's guns and come on. You wouldn't get mad at me because I had nothing to do with it. Yeah, but God could have stopped it. Listen, blaming God is an emotional response, not an intellectual response. Does God say we should kill people? No. Does God say we should be mean to people? No. So when we do exactly what God tells us not to do, why do we get mad at God? Listen to what Asaph said. When my thoughts were bitter and my feelings were hurt, I was as stupid as an animal. I did not understand you. When my heart was bitter, when my feelings were hurt, I was just stupid. I said and thought stupid things because I was upset. That's what happens when bad things happen. We get upset and we, I was stupid as an animal, like a dumb beast. I couldn't think it through. That's how we get when we're all emotional. We don't think things through. So it came to a place where his pain didn't replace his praise. At first it did, but he, he came totally around. Yet I always stay close to you, and you hold me by the hand. You guide me with your instruction, and at the end you will receive me with honor. What else do I have in heaven but you? Since I have you, what else could I want on earth? My mind and my body, they may grow weak, but God is my strength. He's all I ever need. Those who abandon you will certainly perish. You will destroy those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, how wonderful to be near God, to find protection with the sovereign Lord and proclaim all that he has done. So, people look for an intellectual answer to why, but there is none. It's not an intellectual issue. It's an emotional issue. So let me give you an intellectual piece of advice. When things go bad, tie yourself closer to God. And that will see you through. He will see you through. But don't just wait till things go bad. And that's another problem with that couple I talked to yesterday and with others, many of us counsel. Usually our lives don't fall apart in one decision and in one moment, though sometimes they do. But usually it's a cascading event. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, I used to go to church every Sunday and every Wednesday and I served in the youth group. Well, then I kind of stopped going on Wednesday and the youth group wasn't just right for me, so I figured I'd find a, another church. And I looked, but I, I really couldn't find one that fit and, you know, now here we are five years later, haven't been going to church or fellowshipping or reading the word or praying for five years, and the marriage is falling apart. What do we do? Well, for those of you who are not there, don't get there. Don't do all the things that lead to destruction and despair. But if you're there, yes, there's still hope. Reconnect to God. So Asaph started off saying he almost lost his faith, but by the time the psalm is done, he's praising God. Job was angry at God, and at the very end, he just admitted, you know what, God, I'm sorry I even opened my mouth. I'm an idiot. Hey, Asaph said the same thing. He said, I'm as dumb as an animal. 
Habakkuk. Let's see where he ends up. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He ended up in the same place. These guys, these prophets, are not bad men because they ask the questions we ask. Why? They're good men because they chose to trust God even though they didn't know the answer to why. And that's where we need to go. We may not know the answer this side of glory as to why. The Bible says now we see through a, da- a glass darkly. We don't know everything. But can you trust somebody who does? Somebody who's loving and kind and righteous and just. Trust him. He knows what he's about. Why? I don't know why. But trust him. He knows why. And he works all things together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. By the way, I read that passage for you, though. The fig tree may not blossom, no fruit be on the vines, the labor of the olive may fail. What's that mean? Well, let me put that into 21st century non-farmer language. If the economy collapses, I will still trust, love, and praise you, God. This is apropos to us today because the economy in many nations has collapsed and it's on the brink of collapsing in ours. Actually, it has collapsed. Nobody just will admit it yet. Maybe we can dig ourselves out of the hole we've put ourselves in. But I can tell you this. God didn't put us in the hole. What got us into the hole? Doing things with money that God said in his Bible not to do. Like I said, we get ourselves into trouble, then we cry out to God. So what do we need to do to fix it? Stop doing those things with money that God told us not to do. For starters, don't spend more than you have. When we get upset, we don't think clearly. I'm thankful for those who can guide us who do think clearly. After September 11th, two days later, do you remember how raw your emotions were? How angry you were? You were just ready to turn the entire Middle East into glass? Just lay out every nuclear weapon we have and be done with it? Aren't you glad you weren't the man on the button that day? We weren't thinking clearly. We just wanted revenge. We wanted vengeance. We wanted death and destruction. They killed, you know, 3,000 of ours. Let's kill 30 million of theirs. And others were just hurt and upset and grieving. Two days after, Reverend Billy Graham's daughter-in-law, Ann Graham Lotz, was interviewed on CBS's early show by Jane Clayson. By the way, uh, this woman, her parents are godly people who live in Tucson. So we have a close connection. Clayson asked her, I've heard people say, those who are religious, those who are not, if God is good, how could God let this happen? To that you say? How would you like to be in that woman's shoes? can answer that question now, you know, years after September 11th, because the pain and stuff is gone, but two days after, she was brave getting on that show. But I think the Holy Spirit spoke through this woman. I've heard people say, those who are religious, those who are not. If God is good, how could God let this happen? To that you say, I say, God is also angry when he sees something like this. I would say also, for several years now, Americans, in a sense, have shaken their fist at God. 
and said, God, we want you out of our schools. We want you out of our government, out of our business. We want you out of our marketplace. And God, who is a gentleman, has just quietly backed out of our national and political life, our public life, removing his hand of blessing and protection. We need to turn to God first of all and say, God, we're sorry we've treated you this way. And we invite you now to come into our national life and we put our trust in you. Wow. You know, this, in my opinion, will go down in history as one of the greatest speeches ever given. When we're in heaven, we'll be remembering this. Maybe not four score and so many years ago remembering that one, but this one I think we'll be remembering. She just turned it right back around. Said, why are you blaming God? We told God to take a hike, and now we're mad that he did. Stop, ask him back. She put it back. Ask God back. Why doesn't God do something? Well, the answer is simple. Humankind, for the most part, has rejected God. God is good, but we evicted him, and it left a vacuum. And when you evict good, evil moves in. Things can get better in this world, but we have to come back to God. It's that simple. I told you, the answer is usually simple. We just don't want to do it. We have to come back to God. Maybe you can't turn the nation. Maybe you're no Obama or Romney. Maybe you don't have that kind of influence, but you can pray for Obama, and you can pray for Romney, whomever God raises up. And it might not be one of those two guys. Only God knows who's coming up next. But I tell you what, it always starts with us. Society is just a whole bunch of us. If you haven't come to God, if you've not made a commitment to come back to God, I encourage you to do so this morning. Simply say a prayer, something like this. God, I'm sorry, I've been living my life as though you weren't in charge, and I want to stop that now. I want to fix that. I believe Jesus died for my sins, and I turn from them. All my sins, Lord. My selfishness, my unkindness, my faithlessness, my rudeness, my crudeness, all of it. I give it up. I want to follow Jesus. Please help me to do so. Amen. And then you start a fresh walk with God. And you be one person who's back to God. And then influence another, and then influence another. Look at the pews, way too many empty chairs. Look at the closest empty seat next to you, and I want you to pray for whoever's gonna be sitting there. I want you to pray that God will sit somebody there, and God would bless them. And this would be somebody who does not yet know God, somebody we can help find God. Maybe you'll help that person find God this week, maybe at your workplace, maybe as a Facebook stranger who's become your friend. Don't be afraid to speak up for God because we are the only hope this world has. That pastor was right. If we don't bring people to God, they have no hope at all. And we are the ones that God entrusted with the message. Please join me in prayer. Okay, Lord, you've given us a, a major responsibility. Help us to be faithful to it. Help us to be adequate to the task, to be competent, but above all, to just be willing. And I pray for myself as well. 
give me, give us opportunities to share our faith, boldness, and with wisdom, with gentleness and respect, that we might help people come to you. And Lord, may it not be too late. May you bless our land. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.